everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Stories of Us. I'm your host, Sri Pinamretti. Today, I'm here with a very special guest, Ishan Shah. Ishan is the founder of Stolen Dreams, an organization that spreads awareness about human trafficking and modern slavery. He is an, also an advocate for gender equality and climate change and has his own podcast, Handjob for Humanity. Hey, Ishan, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. Let's talk a little bit about Stolen Dreams. What inspired you to start Stolen Dreams? Yeah, so um, towards the end of 2016, I watched a documentary about child trafficking and about modern slavery and human trafficking. And I didn't really know that this was something that still existed today. And so I watched this documentary and I was seeing children across the world being exploited for things like labor and for sex as well. And originally I thought this was an issue that's happening in faraway countries and faraway communities. So in places like India, Bangladesh and Nepal. But actually I found out that the International Labor Organization estimates that in the UK, which is where I live, there are over 136,000 slaves. And when I realized that this was an issue that's happening on my doorstep and it's happening you know, in the clothes we wear and the foods we eat and in the hotels we visit when we go on holiday, I knew that this was something that I had to tackle. And then I went into school the following week and I spoke to my friends about um, the documentary that I just watched. And I asked all 156 kids in my year, do you know that slavery still exists? And not one of them knew that it was still a problem today. And everybody had thought that it was something that had ended when um, the abolition was passed in the UK in 1833, um, and which marked the end of the Atlantic slave trade. Um, but actually, this is something that is occurring on our doorsteps, and also we as children are at risk. And so I went onto the internet, and I started researching modern slavery and human trafficking. But the information on, on Google and online was very harrowing. It was very complicated. And at the time, I was only 13, and I was struggling to understand you know, all this information that was being fed to me. And there was no platform online for young people to engage with this issue and to learn how they can take part in the fight against slavery. And so that really inspired me to create Stolen Dreams. Talk to me a little bit about why these numbers are so large and why, even though these numbers are so large, so many people are not aware about this issue. Yeah, so I think, um, especially when it comes to kids, we think that, you know, when we get given clothes by our parents or by our friends and when we get food on the table, mm-hmm. we often think that this, these products are made in machine, by machines in factories. But I don't think we understand that every single product has a very complicated supply chain to it. And this is something that I like to talk to young kids about, especially. And I really dissect the whole, um, the whole topic of businesses and supply chains and supply chain management, um, especially to, I speak to children aged seven to 18. And so explaining that to a seven-year-old is quite challenging and you've really got to water it down. And, you know, you've got to explain to them that just to make a t-shirt, there are, you know, tens of processes involved, you know, picking the cotton cutting the fabric, putting the fabric together, delivering it to your shop, the people even selling it to the shop. And at any point in that supply chain, slavery could occur. And so that's why people aren't really aware of it. In terms of why it's happening so much, um, there is a demand for labor in all of the industries that we have today, and especially in the fashion industry, which is the second most um, at risk of um, slavery. And that's because of the fast fashion movement where we are mm-hmm. constantly demanding and wanting to buy new clothes um, you know, every week. And that's something that young people especially are you know culprits of because we see a new fashion trend and we immediately want to copy it and we just keep buying and buying and buying and buying but we don't realize that actually there are men women and children who are you know forced into these factories to make the clothes that we wear and so and even for sex for example as well um that's just down to you know human greed i guess right and our own desires to you know pleasure ourselves and the cheapest way and the fastest way of doing that and way to do that and make money as well because the human trafficking industry actually earns 118 billion pounds every year um, from illegal profits. 
which is a wow. huge sum. Yeah, um, and so the cheapest way to do that is by recruiting or kidnapping or luring people in with the false promise of a better life. Yeah, that's definitely, in a way, it's traumatic to hear those numbers and those statistics. But I also, there are a lot of people believe that change will usually happen through political measures. So has there any been political measures to kind of cut down on these issues or is that why you started Stolen Dreams and why you want the next generation to be able to solve back for these issues? Yeah, so you're definitely right in saying that policy and government intervention plays a huge part in tackling slavery. And governments are starting to respond, but the response is very slow. And I guess, you know, the, the term slavery, and because it's associated with the history and enslaving history has been really awful, and it still is awful today. And countries, governments don't want to really associate themselves with, you know, the reality that slavery is occurring on their doorsteps. And so actually the UK, France and Australia, they are the three countries that are leading the way in terms of government policy. And so the mm -hmm. UK established the Modern Slavery Act in 2015, which um, basically it tells companies earning over 36 million pounds um, in profits every year to produce a statement which uh, addresses how much slavery they have in their supply chain and what they're doing to tackle it. But it doesn't go much further than that. Government policy across the globe, it basically it wants um, businesses to be transparent, but it doesn't follow up with any accountability. And so that's where we have a real problem. And also in terms of trafficking, when um, a trafficker will traffic someone, they do so by using psychological abuse and a lot of threats. And that's really detrimental in terms of mental health. And when you have the rehabilitation process after you've rescued a survivor of slavery, they have gone through so much psychological damage that, right. that reintegration back into society is really difficult. And right now, the only support they're getting are from NGOs um, and all these nonprofits out there, rather than the government themselves. Um, and I we're see. seeing that a lot during this period, um, COVID-19 period, where governments are neglecting um, those type of people. Yeah. And I was going to also ask, do you know how COVID-19 has been affecting this entire supply chain? Has it increased the amount of modern slavery and forced labor required, especially because it's hard, so hard to get labor right now? Do you know anything about that? Yeah, so there's two sides to this. The first side is, um, so modern slavery is a very hidden crime. You don't, it's quite hard to, you know, you don't go outside your door yeah. and, you know, spot it straight away. It's happening right. behind closed doors. It's happening in the hotels, in, in houses, on your high street, potentially. And so mm -hmm. the lockdowns that have been imposed in all these countries mean that there's no escape um, for, for survivors, right? They're locked in the houses. Um, mm -hmm. you know, they can't go, nobody can see them. And so that means that, you know, people are at risk. And also, people are being laid off jobs, you know, people are not earning any income and that's mm -hmm. making people economically vulnerable. And especially in places yeah. in the UK, you know, even places like India, Bangladesh, Nepal, where people are desperate for an income to simply survive. Mm -hmm. They are going to look for, you know, they're going to be lured in by traffickers who are preying on this vulnerability. Um, and they're just going to accept any job really. And that's really, really um, putting people at risk. And then you've got the online um, side, which um, is especially, uh, we as kids, we're spending a lot of time online on social media. And right. traffickers are using that um, to their advantage and they're using social media to exploit children, and um, especially for sex. So in the UK, the government knows that there are at least 300,000 um, sexual predators online who are targeting kids during this period, um, which is shocking to think. Yeah, so that's one of the things that I've been putting out on my social media is a lot um, in terms of kid, making sure kids are staying safe online and parents are monitoring their kids online as well, which is really important. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the side, which is that all these factories are closing down, right. which means that workers who are potentially being involved in slavery aren't earning any source of income anymore. 
And so this is um, what makes slavery such a really complicated problem because it's very deep rooted. You have issues like poverty, war, climate change, um, and now this um, global pandemic that are affecting people's livelihoods and governments aren't there to protect them. And that is one thing that a lot of organizations, um, international organizations are trying to push governments to do, especially in places like India and Bangladesh, where workers are now not in work, they are far away from home um, because they often traffic from you know, different countries and from further in rural, rural, from rural villages. And mm -hmm. they're not receiving that support from the government and in terms of having an income. So as young people, it often sometimes like we are hesitant to join social issues and bring about social change because we are often caught up in our own problems. But why is this an issue that is so important for us? And also what are ways that we can better engage and solve back for it? So this is an issue that's directly affecting us. We're encountering it every day, indirectly and directly. You know, it could be your parents going to the offices and in the offices, the cleaners there are hired by a third party and they have actually been trafficked um, from Eastern Europe, for example. Yeah. It could be that, you know, the Zara top you wear in the morning to go out, that is made by slavery. When you're, you know, feeling a bit peckish and you go and get that Cadbury's chocolate, that's Cadbury's actually is child save slavery in a supply chain. They force um, children in Indonesia to pick palm oil um, for mm -hmm. their chocolates. Right, so this is an issue that we're encountering every day. Um, and so that is why it's really important that we take um, a stand and tackle it. And I always like to fill this conversation about modern slavery, which can be very depressing and very dark and very harrowing, with as much hope and compassion as possible, because actually we can all play a part um, in tackling this issue. And there are four ways that I like to get young people involved. And the first is to educate yourself about the issue and spread the word. I think education is that, and raising awareness is that fundamental um, that starting point when tackling any social issue. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's really important. And you don't have to become an expert on modern slavery. I certainly am not. And I'm learning new things every single day. Um, so, but just really understanding that this is an issue that's close to home. And then spreading that word to your friends at school, to your family members, and letting them know that actually, despite the fact that we're all at risk, we can do something to tackle this issue. Then the second, um, my second piece of advice would be to stay safe on social media. And especially now more than ever, we need to be doing that. And that means don't talk to people that you don't know. Definitely don't meet people in person that you've met online and that you're not familiar with. And also in terms of, um, I'm talking about explicit content here, so like nude photos. And I think we as young people are heavily involved um, in sort of that industry in sexting and sending nude pictures to each other. And I actually read an art, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Snapchat. Um, I am, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we as young people often think that we send a snap and yeah. 10 seconds is gone, it's disappeared. But mm -hmm. I, I actually read an article a few weeks ago that said, there are over a hundred different ways that the receiver can like screenshot or duplicate that picture without yeah. the sender knowing. And yeah. so we as young people are always thinking that we send a snap photo and you know, that's it. It's gone. The person looks at it, it's disappeared. But actually, you know, whatever you post online, whatever you're sending to people, it's there forever. So really, really be careful. And traffickers will often use that against people, um, especially young people in terms of you're sending someone who's, and traffickers will pose as um, boyfriends, girlfriends, business professionals. It's not like um, your typical, you know, the driving, you're walking down the road and somebody kidnaps you, right? This is happening. Traffickers are very smart nowadays. They are luring young people in um, very, um, in a very clever way. And we've just got to be aware. So that's my second tip, which is to stay safe on social media. Great. My third tip would be to write to your local government representative. So here in the UK, we have um, the different boroughs and we have different MPs for each borough. So definitely writing to your local government representative, letting them know that this is an issue that's occurring on a local level, but also mm -hmm. telling them to adopt some sort of strategy or some sort of framework 
to help survivors on a local level. And that could be from educating um, this issue in schools, in local schools, and training emergency services to spot the signs of slavery, but also having that really robust um, support network for victims of trafficking, survivors of trafficking, when they come out and you know, they're facing these really detrimental mental health issues, including anxiety, PTSD, um, and really making sure that there's a support system in place for them so that that reintegration process is very smooth um, back into society. Right. And my final tip would be to, to be a conscientious consumer. And so I've been talking a lot about ethical clothing um, on my social media, but ethical clothing nowadays is very expensive. Um, you know, mm -hmm. compared to the fast fashion industry like H&M, Primark, Zara, um, mm -hmm. all of those um, cheap clothing, um, mm -hmm. low quality cheap clothing. And I feel really bad when I tell people, um, you know, one way to tackle slavery is to buy ethical clothing, but people can't afford that. I can't afford ethical clothing all the time either. Right. And so I don't, I don't like people being guilty that they can't, you know, buy ethical clothing and they have to buy from companies that are using slavery. So one thing I would say, and especially for young people, is that you've got to really understand that there were people making your clothes. It wasn't machines. There was people who were forced into factories. In Bangladesh, there were kids being forced into factories to work 60 hours a week for very little pay. Mm -hmm. And so really cherishing each item of clothing you get, right? And not wearing it once and then that's it. Wearing it multiple times, really getting the most use out of it, passing it down to your siblings, to your cousins, to your friends, your families, buying secondhand clothing, all of this really helps. And also another really fun activity I like to do um, on social media and especially on Instagram is mm -hmm. I like to go on to all these different companies who use slavery. Um, so we've got H&M, Zara, Primark, even designer companies like Chanel, Versace, um, Superdry, Sports Direct. There's a really long list um, of all these companies. But going onto their social medias, onto their Instagram posts and then commenting, asking them questions like, what are you doing to tackle slavery in your supply chains? How much are your workers paid per piece um, that is produced? And what that does is that puts pressure on that company, but it also, you've got thousands of people looking at that one post. And so that engages loads of people from across the world in the conversation that actually slavery is occurring in supply chains of you know, the businesses we see on the high street. Um, so yeah, those are the four ways I would definitely get young people to get involved in the fight against slavery. Yeah, and I was thinking a little bit more about your first point on education. Like in America, we have the option to take a class called AP Human Geography. And that is the only time where we ever discuss or talk about the effects of modern slavery or the effects of sex trafficking in our world. And I was thinking, are there any other resources or ways that as like young people, we can get more educated about these issues and learn a little bit more? Because I often assume that a lot of resources might be traumatic or explicit. So what are some good resources in your opinion to get educated? and learn more about this issue. Yeah, definitely. So you're more than welcome to look at my website, which is especially targeted at um, kids. Mm -hmm. um, but Anti-Slavery International, they're a great organization. They have a lot of resources for kids, especially. Um, in, in America, there's an organization called Red Light Rebellion. And their Instagram page is amazing because it goes through, um, in terms of America, sex trafficking um, for minors and children is a huge problem. Right. And so this organization, Red Light Rebellion, um, they provide content which is really engaging towards young people and it's really fun and really uplifting and it's mm -hmm. really informative and it's all targeted to young people so that they can really learn about um, sex trafficking in a way that it's not, you know, it doesn't scare them into thinking that oh, now I shouldn't be on social media at all or, right. you know, when I go out of my house, I should like be really careful about where I'm going right. and things. But it fills that conversation with a lot of hope and they go into schools um, as well to teach this issue. 
But another thing that I've been doing is I've been going to different schools and actually talking to the kids there about slavery because in, in the US it's different. You're learning about modern slavery and trafficking, but in our curriculum in the UK, there's no mention of it. Oh, and wow. we learn about the history of slavery in terms of the unadding slave trade, but there's nothing about you know, the fact that slavery is existing now. And we have no lessons about business supply chains, nothing like that is involved. And so really going to these schools, and even if you see a gap um, in terms of any topic, could be climate change, plastic pollution, gender equality, mental health, just go to your school and pitch it to them. And I'm sure that in some way or form, you can implement it into your curriculum. Gotcha. So like moving a little bit on to like other issues that you've also discussed, and one of them being like gender equality. And I guess, what is the significance of having like male allies into the feminist movement? Because there's a lot of like radical feminists who are like, no, only women can be feminists and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So like, what is your response to that? And like, what is the significance of having people like you with us? Yeah, so I think in terms of the word feminism and the way men associate um, the, that word feminism, I think there's a huge misconception because um, feminism is the equality of the sexes and it's not saying that um, it's equal and fair opportunity. So it's not saying that men are better than women or women right. are better than men. It's, it's keeping them on an equal level. And I'm not sure whether it's the media or whether it's peer pressure or um, people's ignorance to the issue, but I think when you mention the word feminism to a group of men or to a group of boys, they immediately think that it's women trying to take over the world. Right. And so that's the first thing that um, males have to understand is that, you know, it's actually empowering men and women. It's actually wanting equality of the sexes. And um, that's the first thing. The second thing would be that boys and um, men, you know, we're growing up thinking that we have to be the toughest and the strongest and the bravest people possible. We have to, you know, provide for families and we have to be the ones who, you know, go yeah. out our way and do these incredible things, right? Like the toxic alpha mentality. Exactly. And it's locking us into a cage, which I like to refer to as toxic masculinity. Right. And I think that's, that, that sort of um, um, incentive is planted from a very young age. Um, mm -hmm. Whether that be, you know, forcing boys to conform to the society and, you know, do football, for example, or to do, right. go to the gym constantly and um, keeping, you know, the girls away from that and keeping girls into more, you know, the, playing the dollhouse or learning how to cook, that sort of thing. Right. Um, people think I often exaggerate that, but it's happening. It's happening. You yeah, know, it's in the, it's, yeah, in places like um, India and Bangladesh and Nepal, where, you know, girls are denied education in Pakistan, millions of girls are denied education every day. Mm -hmm. But it's also happening in the developed world, right? In places like UK, the US, Canada, it's happening. Um, and I think that is all being taught from a very young age. And that's where the root of the problem is um, on a local level and starting on a very family orientated level really mm -hmm. dissecting those, you know, the gender stereotypes, unraveling them um, and allowing them to mix because, um, yeah, men are growing up thinking that we have to be, you know, brave, strong, but actually you can cry, you can be vulnerable, you can be weak, you can fail. Um, That's right. And I think, yeah, in terms of feminism or what men need to do for feminism, I think it's just breaking those gender stereotypes, understanding that each of us are different, you know, no mm -hmm. one's the same. Um, right. And there's no sort of, the definition of masculinity isn't strong, brave, and successful. It is empathetic, it is humble, it is respectful. You know, that it has no boundaries, that definition. That's absolutely right. And I already think that social media and having people like you talk about it and other people and influencers has already been breaking down those stereotypes. But I can definitely relate to the point about it's really family oriented and it's like built up from like day when you're born. You, if you have a girl, you get your girl pink clothes and like the best dollhouse. If you get your, if you get a guy, um, you get like blue clothes and like mm -hmm. 
football and sports stuff. So it's definitely, like you said, dissecting what we're doing as the child is growing up. Um, so both of these issues about gender equality, as well as um, the like modern slavery, they're in a way rooted in like systemic discrimination. And I'm not sure if you've heard about the George Floyd incident that's happening in America, mm -hmm. have you? Yes, yeah, I have. So I know this is a very touchy subject, but I guess what is your perspective and insight on how to kind of solve back for discrimination and be more aware and be more better citizens? Because there have been like a lot of violent protests, like literally one hour away from my home, there's been like the CNN wow. center was like broken mm -hmm. down and everything. So it's like, what is a way that we can peacefully advocate for equality and not necessarily become violent? I think we've got to understand that you know, this discrimination against um, the black people is not their problem. It's not, you know, we, we can't step back. We have to join in. Right. We have to, you know, we stand with them. We mourn with them. You know, right. we, we want this to change. And um, I, this is not a new issue. It's not something right. that, you know, has happened in the past few years. It's just that more and more people are on social media and people are recording it. So people are seeing it more. Right. And this is an issue that is, you know, it's, it's awful. I, I, when I heard about um, the kidding, I watched the video as well. And yeah, me too. I just had no words because it's really, as a young person, it's absurd to think that this is happening that one human could do this to another human based on their color. Um, and that's one of the things that I really struggle to cope with in terms of modern saving human trafficking. And one of the challenges I still face today is the emotions that overwhelm me every time I see a story or every time I see a post about it. The mm -hmm. fact that one human can do this to another human. And we as young people, um, we often think, oh, well, I'm not a boy, so why should I stand up for women's rights? I'm not, um, you know, I'm not black. Why should I stand up for, um, you know, black lives? Um, mm -hmm. I'm not at risk of slavery. Why should I stand up for, you know, attacking slavery? Um, and I think we've got to get rid of that mentality because ultimately, you know, we are one. We are, you know, together, we are all human. And, you know, one, problem's pro one person's problem is also our problem. Um, we all have friends who are colored. We all have friends who are white. We all have friends who are, you know, we're all human. And it's really that support that we need. Um, yeah, and in terms of, the, um, I've always been a follower of Mahatma Gandhi. And so nonviolence is at the center of, of my life. Um, and so when these violent protests happen, you know, it's just a reaction to, you know, the, the troublesome um, society that we live in today. And I think whilst um, I don't really um, like violent protests, I think that it's just, you know, a consequence. Um, we've got to deal with it and we've got to support each other in this. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Now, I know we just had like a very serious conversation about discrimination and equality and all that, but like shifting more towards you and your perspective, talk to me about like a meaningful experience that you had that like kind of changed your perspective about things. It can still be about stolen dreams or something else. Yeah, so um, from a very young age, we've always been taught, as in, um, my sister and I have always been taught by our parents and our grandparents that we live in a very privileged um, world, we, a very privileged life we have. We have a roof over our heads, we have food, um, you know, we have meals three times a day, we right. get to go to school, we have an education. And so I was, um, in 2015, I went for the first time to India um, and I visited slums there. And it's one thing seeing mass poverty um, on a news article or on a picture or on social media, but actually being there and speaking to the kids there, that changes your life. It's, right. And, I don't want to sound cliche and say it was life-changing and things like that, but yeah. it, it genuinely, your perspective changes completely because the kids that are living in those slums, 
Mm-hmm. They have like one room to share between seven to 13 of them. They have, you know, in terms of their sanitary products, I don't have very much access, um, no fresh water. And there's one school in the middle. And even then some of them are not allowed to go because they have to, the girls especially have to stay home and learn how to cook. Um, yeah. There was a girl who's 14, year old, uh, 14 years old who was going to be married to a police officer. Wow. Um, really seeing that really just, you know, something hits you. But despite the hardships they face, they mm. are the most happiest people I've ever met. They are right. the most giving people I've ever met. Right. And, you know, when that comes to the definition of happiness in terms of, you know, you don't need anything to be happy. You don't need anything to give to others, right? You can have nothing and still give selflessly to others. That really changed my life. And from that moment, it was almost like I knew that the direction of my life would be towards serving others. Yeah. I had a very similar experience, like like you said, it's like one thing to know about these issues and one thing to like vi- witness it like firsthand. So a couple of summers ago, I would travel to the Dominican Republic, which is like a small Caribbean island um, right below the United States. And I guess my experience was, I was shocked about their healthcare system. Basically, there is very like prevalent diseases in these developing nations and that has been known but there was this one disease called like helminthiasis, which is like a parasitic worm disease. And it actually affects about like one sixth of the world's population, which is ridiculous. That's like billions of people. Mm-hmm. And I guess my problem why I was so frustrated about it is because if you're infected with these parasitic worms is that you're constantly tired. You're constantly having diarrhea, anemia. That means you can't focus in school. You can't go to a job, you can't work, earn money. So it kind of made me realize like a lot of the problems, if the government invests more healthcare access, it could be a little bit better for their country to go. But a lot of these developing nations, they only spend about like 1%. And the other hard part of it is that pharmaceuticals here or anywhere, they're accessible and they're very cheap to make, like maybe less than like 50 cents in US dollars, but the price, like spike of the price is so high. So it's kind of like realizing like talking to these people and realizing that even though they have so little, how so optimistic they can have, like you said, it definitely changes your perspective about happiness and how you can lead your life. Wow, yeah, definitely. So I think, what do you think are good qualities of a leader? That's a great question. Um, I think, um, I actually did a speech um, to a, um, a group of um, 11 to 18 year olds um, on in terms of selflessness and giving to others and one of the points I touched upon was leadership mm-hmm. and I think a leader has to be someone who is empathetic someone who understands um, others viewpoints um, right. someone who's respectful of those viewpoints as well mm-hmm. but also one of the things that I touched upon which is something that uh, people um, often disregard and they say like they always talk about leadership and listening but I sort of twisted it and I said a good leader is the last to speak um, rather than good at listening, because listening can mean that you can listen and you can like in, sort of interrupt, um, that sort of thing. But I think what makes a good leader is someone who's the last to speak. And that involves um, listening to every single person's opinion. And I think that's something that I found is really helpful um, in terms of my social impact work. And that's getting different perspectives, on, because different people have different ideas, different perspectives. Um, and your idea may not always be the best, even though you think it may be. And right. so listening to each person on your team's um, if you're doing a pitch, for example, listening to each person's advice or each person's pitch, um, whatever it may be, really considering that first, then you being the last to speak. I think that's really, really crucial. Um, 
because there could be something that someone else said that completely undermines what you were going to say mm -hmm. right or something that someone else says that gives you a whole fresh new perspective and during that time while they're talking you suddenly come up with something that's even better or mm -hmm. something that's more productive i think rather than uh, being a good listener i think learning to be the last to speak really helps in terms of being a good leader yeah and actually in terms of this podcast and creating it, i think i've learned the lesson of being the last to speak or being a listener because you always want to focus on the guest and learn the most from your guest like you can ask them anything and they will usually respond to it and before this i was a very very talkative person but it's like really important to learn the value of listening and learning from others as a leader so i can definitely, definitely. relate to that as well um so let's talk a little bit about about destigmatizing sex and all that because it's, i think especially in the indian south asian culture it's a very tough topic so yeah. why do you think it's it's important for parents to discuss sex at such a young age yeah so when I say the word sex, people often think of the act and the intercourse. Yeah, right. But actually, yeah, actually there is a whole network of topics underneath sex and that can involve relationships, sexuality, consent. Mm -hmm. And I think when, when you go to parents and you go to schools and you go, okay, let's teach kids about sex, they're often a bit wary at first. But actually what I found is you can teach sex from as young as one years old, right? Mm -hmm. Because sex involves things like consent. And when you're, um, you've got a baby, for example, and they're asking, you know, even th simple things like asking permission before, um, or letting your kid know to ask permission before they sit on someone's lap. That's teaching them consent. That's teaching them boundaries. And even at such a young age, that can make a difference going forward. And mm -hmm. so it's really important to have those open, honest, respectful, and healthy conversations about sex with your parents. And I fully understand that it's an embarrassing and awkward and, you know, sometimes a bit odd topic um, to speak about with your parents that's something that we've got to destigmatize that's something that we've got to like counter and and it's difficult um more with teenagers um mm -hmm. going into schools and then telling a teenager okay you've got to start talking to your parents about sex it's harder to um, get them to do it it's easier to start at a young age and really build up that healthy relationship from a young age to when they um, progress and become adults but yeah, yeah as you were saying it's like the south asian community hits a block when you um, talk yeah, about right. the topic of sex definitely but I'm still waiting for my parents to talk to me about it. So. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's my, my problem with it is like, it is so heavily stigmatized that most of the information that you ever learn from it are from school. If your school has health classes and then your friends, and that might not be a best source of learning information, like you said about consent and like sexuality. And so what do you think that like, how can parents approach this discussion, especially when it's so heavily stigmatized? Um, like how can they kind of go over that barrier and sit down with their kids and talk about it? Yeah. So, um, if you don't talk to, um, kids about sex, um, mm -hmm. and they grow up, um, they will discover porn. They right. will discover <laughs> that industry. And that is where they will learn how to respect women, how sex should be, um, how, you know, how they can pleasure, um, others and themselves. And that's wrong because porn gives you, um, a distorted reality, right? And right. It's, it is detrimental to um, someone's mental health. Porn, watching porn gives you the wrong image of how women should be treated. I'm talking about boys especially. Um, you know, and um, in terms of porn and human trafficking, um, porn hub itself is very unregulated. And there's a lot of right. cases of human trafficking, sex trafficking, and also child rape on porn hub. Um, mm -hmm. There's hundreds of cases that um, are known. And so, um yeah if you don't talk to your kids about sex they will find porn and that's where they think that's how women should be treated right 
yeah, they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't any, they don't know any better, and that's not their fault. Um, and Jim, I'm not sure if you heard of Jamila Jamil. Um, she's amazing, and um, she's one of my role models. Um, and she said, learning sex from porn is like learning how to drive from watching The Fast and the Furious, um, <laughs> which I love. But yeah, porn is detrimental, and parents need to start talking to their kids from a younger age. Because, um, you know, you don't learn about porn from your parents, but you learn about porn from your friends, right? And right, that's, right. that's at school where it usually happens. And so um, it varies in terms of um, parents and how old their kids are. And I've written a detailed guide on my website um, mm -hmm. under the tab, Talk About Sex. Um, and it goes through each age group and how parents can start. So from a young age, as I said, letting your kids know about boundaries, um, asking permission before you sit on lap, um, the lap or before somebody touches you, Letting young kids know that, you know, people shouldn't be touching them in inappropriate ways um, mm -hmm. and that they can say no. And mm -hmm. then as you get older, um, really talking about how porn is a distorted reality of life um, and how each person um, is pleasured differently. Right. And right. having really those comfortable conversations about pleasure and about, you know, the different types of sex that you can have, really destigmatizing it and making it a conversation as normal as, you know, asking how was your day. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like really normalizing the topic and really making it something that you don't feel ashamed of, you don't feel embarrassed of. Right. And also in terms of um, sex, there's like the whole sexuality type of things, right? Letting kids explore their sexuality, letting mm -hmm. kids, you know, not um, getting them to conform to the gender stereotype um, yeah. society. Exactly, yeah. Um, so it really depends on the age of the child, but, you know, from zero to 18, it's doable. Right, right. And this is again like going over you have done like so much stuff you've done work on like stolen dreams you've worked done work on like a lot of you advocated for a lot of social issues as well I just imagine like how are you able to like balance your like social activism and advocacy with like school and life and other stuff like how do you balance that I need yeah. help <laughs> <laughs> this is a question I always get asked and um, at first it was really tough it was um, I, I especially with making a website I'd never done that before so I was coding website and also all this information that I was getting off Google, I couldn't understand. It was really harrowing, really difficult. And I had to water down that content for young people to understand. So mm -hmm. I was bombarded with all this information. <laughs> and on top of that, I had my schoolwork. Um, I, had, um, I was swimming a lot then at the time. Um, I had a lot of extracurricular activities um, to do. It was really sort of difficult at first to balance it. And then I made a timetable. So definitely having a timetable and organization works. But because I've been doing it for so long, um, um, the issues of climate change, and mental health, um, anti-slavery, and gender equality, they are things that I'm passionate about. Right. And so they are my hobbies now. They are my relaxation time. And so people often ask, how do you balance it? And I say, well, I do my schoolwork as normal. I do my extracurricular activities as normal. And mm -hmm. then my relaxation time or my time to explore my hobbies is doing this stuff. I really enjoy it. I really enjoy reading articles about you know, human rights. I really enjoy scrolling through Instagram and making posts mm -hmm. or making content. I really enjoy blogging and writing. And I think when your passion becomes your hobby, when your passion becomes your life and your relaxation time, um, it all becomes easier then. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think another thing is sometimes this is something that I've personally experienced, especially I've been trying to make this podcast daily. So I've been having daily interviews and then editing for like three to four. Um, and then posting, doing all the social media. And I realized that it's becoming really quickly overwhelming. So I guess for me, like, how do you ensure that your passions don't become overwhelming? For me, it's been like a full-time job creating this. Um, so like, 
do you have any suggestions on trying to figure out how to maintain that balance so your passions don't intrude in your life and affect the other things as well? Yeah, so you're doing this podcast every day and I was doing mine once a week and I was finding that so overwhelming. So <laughs> yeah. I really commend you on, the, on doing I'm this. Like, I'm trying to transition to like every other day or maybe two to three a week, but we, we will see. <laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of um, keeping that balance, it's really crucial to... Um, when you start and you find your passion and you you but I what I did is I got a sheet of paper and I listed all the things that I had to do in a day and mm. so there was like social impact work school um maybe if I had to respond to some emails um you know it could be things like um eating for example fitting in your when you have dinner lunch and um, breakfast but really creating those boundaries from the beginning and letting yourself know that okay if I'm giving myself two hours to do my social impact work I will stick to those two hours because if I don't, yeah. it will then affect my academic work. Right. And then reviewing that every couple of weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Even if it's simple things as looking at your performance in class one day and say, well, actually I did five hours of social impact work that night and that day after school, keeping a diary really helps in doing this. Right, well. right. But even like the day after thinking that, oh, I was really tired today during school. And yesterday I did more social impact work than usual. So maybe this week, let me cut down a bit. Mm-hmm. But also making sure that you get that time to switch off completely. And when I say that my passions is my relaxation time. Something, sometimes I become um, exhausted from writing, from blogging, from reading all these articles. So having that time to, even if it's, you know, whether it be yoga, meditation, watching trashy Netflix shows, you know, anything, <laughs> having that time to yourself just to keep you happy, uplifted, especially now in this time more than ever, I think that's really crucial, having that time to just switch off from everything. Yeah, it's absolutely correct. And kind of winding down on this conversation, talk to me about your podcast, Handjel for Community. Yeah, so I was really nervous about releasing a podcast night because it's a really unusual time to release anything, really. Right. Um, yeah, and glorify anything. But um, I, so I was sitting there one day. I've been wanting to release a podcast for a few years now. I just mm-hmm. haven't had the time, um, or maybe it's because I was being a bit lazy. But <laughs> yeah, um, I wanted initially this podcast to focus on human rights. But then mm-hmm. this global pandemic came along, and I thought, let me focus it on things that are going to do with mental health. And so I released this podcast as a way to uplift young people, um, to provide them with positivity, some tips for this lockdown period, but also just to give them company for um, a period of time. Um, and my sister actually came up with the name Handjob for Humanity. We were, we were like um, brainstorming names and she said, oh, what about Handjob for Humanity? I thought that's great because um, one of the things I talk about is perfection and we're all relying on Handjob uh, now more than ever, but we, are, we have been relying on it for years and years. But Handjob only kills 99.9 or something like that percent of bacteria. So it's not perfect, just like no one is perfect. And so that was sort of the deeper meaning behind the name of the um, podcast. Wow. But yeah, I released it because um, it focuses on mental health. It focuses on things like body image, um, getting your goals, how to keep motivated, um, not putting too much pressure on yourself during this time because we don't have to come out of this pandemic learning a new skill or creating a business. We just got to try our best every day. Um, and a lot about um, social media and how, you know, our bodies are our own and our bodies are enough. We are enough as we are. We don't have to be pressurized by our peers, yeah. by society, by all these dieting adverts that we're bombarding uh, with. Wow. Um, that's actually really good that you kind of started for like humanitarian purpose, hence Handel for Humanity. Um, for me, it was a little bit different. For me, it was, I was kind of having like an existential crisis every other day because I'm like, <laughs> I'm applying to college next year. I have no idea what I want to do with my life. I had a pretty crappy year last year. So it's like, I thought maybe asking other people for advice and seeing how passionate and determinant they are can help inspire me to do better for myself. But in a way, a byproduct of that has been like, it's been inspiring not only me, 
but also others. It's not been only keeping me sane during this pandemic, but it's also given others company, like you said. So it's really great initiative. Um, about the podcast, what were some initial setbacks that you had to overcome or that you need when you were starting to create? Because I definitely had anxiety trying to put myself on blast because I never, I never really interacted on social media that much. So it was like, should I talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, one of the challenges initially was um, during this time, young people especially, we're finding it hard to stay motivated. Um, right. And we're, we're all human. And I go through periods where um, I was feeling really unmotivated as well. Um, and these conversations were actually the highlight of my day, speaking to different people. Right. Um, they kept me company for that whatever, half an hour, 45 minutes of me talking to them. Um, and that I didn't realize how hard it was going to be to make a podcast. Right, <laughs> I right. sort of under, underestimated it completely. Because, me too. <laughs> completely. <laughs> um, I would record the episode and then I would spend hours trying to edit it. Um, and I didn't know what software to use. I didn't know whether it was going to sound okay. Um, you know, there was all, all these anxieties running through my head. Um, and then what happened was um, I released the first episode and there was this really great engagement towards it, which, was, um, which I was really pleased about. Um, and then so one of the challenges was balancing my um, online schooling, which was really difficult because they were providing us with a lot of work. Um, I say that I've often done, I often say that I've done more work this lockdown than I have in the past three years. Wow. <laughs> setting up so much work. And it was that, it was all the social impact work. I was reaching out to a lot of um, local councils, making sure that they were providing support systems for those at risk of domestic violence and modern slavery. Um, mm -hmm. There was all these different factors going and then there was the fact that on some days I just wasn't motivated. I just couldn't be bothered to get out of bed and edit a podcast. Right. And so that was one of the issues. And I was releasing one every Sunday. And so it would often be that on the Sunday or on the Saturday the night before, <laughs> I would suddenly have this burst of, you know, motivation almost. And I'd be sitting there editing it, editing it. So that was one of the main challenges to overcome for me. Mm -hmm. um, but also finding, um, I wanted to talk to young people, especially, and people who would provide um, you know, advice and company for young people. This was a podcast aimed at young people. Um, and I think really getting that message across to young people that we don't have to put pressure on ourselves to do anything during this time. We've got to, you know, use the unfollow button on social media to our advantage and fill up our feed with as much positivity and things that make us laugh and smile as possible. Um, yeah. Really getting the message across that we've got to just survive this pandemic. That's all the government's asked to survive. Nothing more, nothing less. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ishan, for your time. I've gotten so much insight and this is a lot of fun to record. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you so, so much for listening to this last episode with Ishan Shah. He is genuinely such a compassionate, educated, and intelligent individual. He truly cares and is so passionate about all the social initiatives he advocates for. So make sure you check out his work at stolendreams.co.uk. And additionally, take a listen at his podcast, at Handjail for Humanity, where he has discussions with other changemakers and inspiring people. Let's transition into our big three discussion. The big three for this episode with Ishan for me are being conscientious, education, and balance. Let's first talk about what being conscientious means. It means that you're not only aware about certain social issues, but you're able to act upon the information that you know from the social issues. The perfect example for this is when Ishan discusses about fast fashion and ethical brands. Now, this is something that we are all guilty of. We buy clothes and we might not use them for the long term. 
and but being a conscientious citizen means that we're educated that a lot of these big companies like h&m and zara they oftentimes use forced labor and the modern day slavery system in order to make the products of our clothing the way that we should respond to this is probably turn to more ethical brands but ishan like ishan said it's not always affordable for others. So being conscientious means that based on the information, we're more likely to keep our clothes and only buy something for the long term rather than just simply discard and buy more clothes. Another thing is that acting on something that you're passionate about. Now, there's many social issues and a big thing is like, why care? There's more problems that in my life that I have to address before others. But a lot of these social issues are being acted upon right now. I think one of the most important things that's happening now in America is the George Floyd incident and the responding protests that have been occurring. It's we're becoming to realize that a lot of these social issues are no longer just pertaining to one group, but rather they're all interconnected and affecting us in our everyday lives. And as a global citizen, we have the responsibility to be conscientious, act and support these initiatives so that eventually one generation, they can overcome such negativities. The next thing is on education. Now, education and conscientiousness go hand in hand, but it's really important to be educated about these issues because the more information that you're able to learn from others in the sources, the more likely you're about to act upon it. And by education, I don't necessarily mean talking about what's happening at school. Like Ishan said, in the UK, there isn't necessarily a curriculum that's talking about fast fashion and the entire supply chain of businesses. But it's important that we seek education and seek new knowledge. This is not only applicable for us in our future careers and stuff, but it's also going to make us a better citizen because the more aware we are, the more likely we are about to have more engaging discussions that may bring about change in the future. The last one is balance. And you guys know I ask the balance question to almost every single person that comes in the podcast. And although each one of them may have their different way of balancing their lifestyle, a similarity that I found between all of them is to necessarily write down all of your priorities. Now, this is something that Ishan suggested as well, keeping a diary of what is most important to you and making sure that your passion is going to be something that doesn't necessarily intrude into your other life and more important things like academics or something, but it's still there to make you happy and make you feel purposeful. And this is something that we are still going to be working on and still gaining more knowledge because every way, every way that people maintain balance is different. So it's important to recognize that maintaining balance for what you're passionate about is important so that you don't eventually burn out. Ultimately, I thank you guys so much for listening into this podcast and supporting this entire initiative of Stories of Us. As always, thank you for your stories.